Our Old Testament reading is Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27, and you can find that on page 724 in the Bibles we provide. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The word of the Lord. And the New Testament reading this morning is Acts 2, 1 through 21, and that's on page 909. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of the Lord. And our gospel lesson and text for study this morning is from John chapter 14, beginning with verse 15, and actually we'll read all the way down through verse 31, the end of the chapter. You'll find this on page 901 of the Bibles that we provide. Jesus is speaking. If you loved me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The Gospel of Christ. To understand what Jesus is doing here in these verses, we need to enter into the text and set the larger context. Jesus is not simply giving a theological lecture on the work of the Holy Spirit. He is rather speaking into the disciples' deep fear. Why do I say that? Beginning in chapter 13, we read that Jesus, having loved his own while he was in the world, loved them to the very end, and we have that beautiful story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, a job that you could not make a Jewish slave Perform. Only a Gentile was to wash your feet. It was so demeaning. And then Jesus said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me Lord and Master, and I am. This is what leadership looks like in my kingdom. This is what it means to be in charge. It means that you are willing to set the example of self-sacrificial love and do what no one else would be willing to do, even take the lowest place. And then we know from the other Gospels that the meal that they were eating was the Last Supper. And in the midst of that supper, Jesus says to his disciples, and this is the cause for their great fear, I'm going away, and where I'm going, you cannot come at this time. Now, they have followed Jesus into a dangerous city, Jerusalem, where the leadership had determined that they were going 
to try to arrest Jesus and destroy him, but they've gone with him. And they're trusting him to somehow get them through this experience. And now he says to them, he's already been saying, my enemies are going to take me and crucify me, but I'll rise up again. So they're living in that hope and yet really not believing him. And now he says, I'm leaving you. Where I'm going, you can't come at this time. And that's what caused Peter at the end of chapter 13 to say, Lord, I'll go with you wherever you're going. I'll go with you even to death. And Jesus says, Peter, before tomorrow dawns, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Now, Peter's the leader of the band. Jesus has said, I'm leaving you. You can't come at this time. And Peter, you, the leader of the band, before the night is over, are going to deny me. These people are in despair. And so Jesus begins chapter 14 by saying, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas says, how can we know where you're going? How can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. You haven't told us. And Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He who believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. And then Philip says, oh, <laughs> Philip just wants to cut to the chase. He says, just show us the Father, and that will be enough. I don't understand what you're talking about, Jesus. Just show us the Father. That's why we followed you. That's what we want. We want to know our Father God. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know who I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then he tells them, you are going to do even greater things than I have done. And it is better for you that I now go to the Father. And in the midst of this, he cuts through their perplexity by telling them that the time has come now, even as the time had come for the Messiah in the fullness of time. The time is almost approached when the promise that God had given through such prophets as Ezekiel in that text that uh, we read for our Old Testament lesson, and again, Jeremiah, and in other places, the promise was that God would one day send his spirit and establish a new covenant with his people. And no longer would the word simply be something external, but now it would be written on their hearts. And Jesus is saying, that time has come. And in these verses, he gives a beautiful picture of certain key ministries that the Holy Spirit would have to his people. And I want this morning, and I'll have to go fast because uh, preachers usually work better with only about three points. I have six. But there are six things that I want to just underscore, and I'll, I'll try to go against my 
uh, proclivity and, and be brief with each. Just suggest each one of these because each is a crucial ministry. The first thing that he tells us about the Spirit is that the Spirit is the paraclete. Now, that is the Greek word that he uses, parakletos. And it is literally one who is called alongside. You cry out and the paraclete comes. It was used in the ancient world in two senses. It was used for an attorney, a a legal counsel, one who, when you're in trouble, you call and this person comes to walk you through the court. It was also used for one called alongside in the midst of distress to comfort you, to help you. And our translators have chosen that larger word, help, because it can cover all the various meanings that are covered. But the key is, just as Jesus came and ministered to his disciples and showed them who the Father was, just as they called out to him to help them, so he says, When I return to the Father, I will pour out my Spirit upon you. And here he says the Father will. It's a work of the Father and the Son, the outpouring of the Spirit. And he will be the one to whom you will be able to turn. He has been with you, meaning in in Jesus. Remember, Jesus at his baptism was baptized with the Spirit. So he says he's been with you, but now he's going to be in you in this new way with all of the power of the victory that Christ was right on the cusp of winning in his death and resurrection. He says, the Spirit is going to come. I am going to come to you. And so the Spirit of God is the Spirit of the risen, conquering Christ who comes to us and abides in us. And it's crucial that we not do those things that The Apostle Paul in two places and the author of Hebrews once warns us about when we simply live carelessly, live as though we were masters of our own lives, live as though we'd not been made children of God and go our own way. Then we're told that we can grieve the Spirit, that we can quench the Spirit. Those are Paul's two phrases, and the author of Hebrews says we can even, if we simply go on living as we would live without obeying the Lord, we can outrage the spirit of holiness. And so because this is the one who has come to help us, it's a foolish thing to do anything that would grieve or quench or outrage the one who is our great helper. So that's the first point that he makes. He is our helper. Secondly, one of the first ways that he helps us is that he says, he, when he comes, will lead you into all truth. So it's the Spirit who both for the biblical writers brought to mind, he he says later in this text, that he will bring to your memory the things that I've told you. So you say, how did they remember? Jesus said that was the work of the Spirit, to enable those who would give us the Scriptures to write the word of the Lord for us. But beyond that, the Spirit continues to illumine the people of God today so that when you and I go to the word of God, we can, in that beautiful expression of Eugene Peterson's, have our eyes turned into ears. What does Peterson mean by that? I remember I said that once and quoted that once in a service and I got an email from somebody saying, eyes into ears, what are you talking about? 
He just means that as we're reading words on a page, all of a sudden we realize that God is speaking to us through it. That this is no longer just a book that I'm reading, but the Spirit of God has taken this thing and all of a sudden I realize I am being addressed by the living God because the Spirit is the one who has promised to lead us into truth. And of course, the enemy of our souls, Satan, the accuser, is called the father of lies. And the world is under the dominion of a lie. The lie that we are masters of our own lives, that we are ultimately little gods, that we are autonomous laws to ourselves, that meaning is what I decide that it is. The truth is my truth. Maybe that's not your truth. That all paths lead the same way. That all that matters is that you're sincere. All of the ways that we reject the clear word of God. But the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us into truth. And so a way to know whether or not we are walking in the Spirit is to say, is my life increasingly lining up with the truth of God? Am I beginning to learn to love those whom I would, apart from the Spirit's work in my life, not love? Am I willing to set aside resentments? Am I willing to make peace with those who have wronged me? Not to get something, but because God has made peace with me. Do I desire the things that God has called good and right and true? The Spirit leads us into truth. That's the second thing. The third is that it is the Spirit who makes us God's children. Did you note that Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I'll come to you. Paul would write of this, for example, toward the end of Romans chapter 8, where he speaks of the spirit of adoption and says, when we cry Abba, which we translate father, but really, literally, the formal father would be Av. Abba is daddy. I've told you before, I never came home to me with greater power than years ago when Marianne and I were in Israel. We were sitting in Ben Yehuda Square eating lunch uh, outdoors, and there was this darling little girl at the next table eating with her mom and carrying on. And of course, in Hebrew, I couldn't understand her, but All of a sudden, she looked up and her eyes got bright and she went, Abba, Abba, and jumped out of her chair and began running through the tables. And this big Israeli soldier was walking in with his Uzi over his back and he swept her up in his arm and he showered her with kisses and she showered his face as she just said, Oh, Abba, 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 it's Daddy. Paul says when we approach God with that kind of confidence in his love for us, that's a work of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Spirit who makes us members of the family of God. And fourthly, it is the Spirit who makes us a holy people because we are God's children. Note that he speaks of him as the Holy Spirit. And that's not just something to read right past. It's remarkable, remarkable is too weak a word, it is staggering if we understand the meaning of the word holiness. That God would call us, his people, to be holy. Why? 
Because the real meaning of holiness is otherness. It's one who is separate from us. God is thrice holy. We're told that he's love. We're told that he's justice. We're told that he's many things. But we're only told thrice (laughs) about one thing. He is holy, holy, holy. How do the angels worship him? By saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Why is holiness this special way of understanding God? Because it is not an attribute of God. It is rather the perfection of all of his attributes. His love is perfect. It is the source of love, holy love. His justice is holy. His righteousness is holy. His mercy is holy. He is holy in all that he does. And holiness is used to show how he is different from us. You may say this is a very loving person or a very just person or a very good person. We know that that's relative to other people. But God is perfect in his holiness, justice, truth, all of that. So how can we then ever be called, as God calls us, to be holy. He says, be holy, Old Testament and new. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. How? Only one way. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's the Holy Spirit who is able to begin to take God's children and do what we cannot do for a child that we adopt. If we adopt a child, we can love that child just as much as we would love a child born uh, to us. We can give that child our name. We can give that child our, our, all of our attention, all the benefits of being our child, and completely embrace that child within our family. The one thing we can't do is give that child our genes. That child is probably not going to look like the other kids because that child has different genes. But when God adopts, He puts his spirit in us, and he gives us his life, his attributes. What God looks like is what the spirit now begins to make his people look like. And in that sense, we not only have the holy, holy, holiness of Christ by virtue of being in him, but he actually begins to make us holy. That's why for the past five or ten years I've been in vain against the most popular evangelical teaching of our day, which has said basically, God likes to sin, uh, we like to sin and God likes to forgive. And, and it's all about justification. Thank God for justification. And yes, we are always sinners. But do you notice here how many times Jesus says, if you keep my commandments? If you keep my commandments, if you keep, he says it over and over. How does the world know that I love the Father? Because I keep his commandments. And John, as you know, later in his first epistle, chapter 5, says, this is love for God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And this only happens in a non legalistic way in the life of one in whom the Holy Spirit is at work. Two more. 
Not only does he make us holy, but he brings us his peace. And again, this word that John uses because he's writing in Greek is irene, and it can be translated as peace, but we know that Jesus was not speaking in Greek. He was speaking Hebrew or Aramaic, and we know that the word that Jesus was using was shalom. And whenever Paul speaks of peace, he's Jewish. Though he's writing in Greek, he's thinking shalom. And shalom is a bigger word, a more capacious word than our word peace. It involves that, but it involves every blessing that might come. It is a person who is reconciled to God, who is reconciled to other people, who is reconciled, if we can speak this way, to the cosmos, to this created, uh, to the world. He is at home, not in the world in rebellion against God, but at home within the world and can sing as we sing that old hymn, this is my father's world. He made it, he called it good, and he will one day remake it. This is my destiny as a child of God to live within the recreated cosmos. All of that is in shalom. It is wishing someone every good thing, every blessing of salvation. And Jesus says that he will bring peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you know that peace today? Or do you spend a lot of time with your stomach in a knot? Are you still afraid of so many things in life and perhaps afraid of death itself? The Lord wants to give you the deep peace that's a river of life flowing in you and out of you. He wants you to be reconciled with people whom you would otherwise dismiss as enemies. We are to be Peacemakers, one of the things I've hated about the culture wars is that, yes, we're to stand for truth. Yes, we're to stand for righteousness. But we are to do it in a way that lets those whom we may be principially opposing know that we love them and care deeply about them. That we know that they're not the enemy. That we're resisting ideas and and thoughts, views, but not them, because we are to be the people of Shalom. How sad that that's not how we're seen. An increasing number of young Christian leaders are rejecting the word evangelical and saying, I don't want to be known. Even Tim Keller is not young. He's as old as I am. doesn't want to be known as an evangelical because of the baggage that it has in our culture as someone who's against everything and argumentative and really kind of a hater. What a tragedy, because evangelical comes right out of the Bible. It means gospel, good news. How could we have made it bad news? Because we haven't realized that we are to be the people of shalom. And finally, we would not be faithful to this text if we didn't highlight the way that the text begins, 
the way that it ends and the one thread that runs all the way through that. The Spirit is the one who not only brings us peace, the Spirit is the one who brings us the love of God himself. Just if you look at this text for a moment, it's remarkable. Did you notice I read it? How many times he refers to love? He opens in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Then in verse, I may have skipped one or two, but in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Down verse 23, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him, make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Listen, please forgive me, that's a rude way to say, but there is this false understanding of the gospel that has been taught so long in American churches. That is, whether you're obeying the Lord or not, as long as you pray to sinner's prayer, you're fine. As long as you just ask Jesus into your heart, you're saved. Now, are you, do you want to go to the next level of spirituality or not? Jesus says, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me. And of course, faith and love are linked all through the scripture. Where there is no love, there is no saving faith. Because faith and a glad obedience are the demonstration that we really understand something of what he's done for us and have received it and have his spirit in us. If his spirit isn't in us, we, if we obey, we do it out of legalistic desire to make ourselves righteous and make ourselves right with God. But the obedience of faith is the very expression that we love the Lord and love others. And the church needs to recapture this or the world will have no reason to believe the gospel because what they'll hear is a message and see a life that is a denial of the message. He goes on. That's uh, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then down in verse 28, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. (laughs) How does the world know that it's real for us? doesn't mean we're living perfect lives. We blow it. We lose it sometimes. We, I told you back, Holy Week was a low week for me. Uh, Marianne and Sarah told me they were voting me off the island. I could, you know, after Easter, I could go make a trip somewhere. Actually, I did. I went to Hong Kong. It's probably a nice vacation for them. Um, but people who know us should see that we are moving in a Christward direction that we are being changed, that, we're, that when we speak wrongly, when we act wrongly, it grieves us. We repent, we ask forgiveness, we seek reconciliation. The love of God 
is the motive for this. You see, that's the whole difference. People who make a false distinction between faith and obedience and think the one is law and the other grace simply can't read the Bible. I'm sorry, but they don't know how to read the Bible because the Bible's so clear about it. Obedience is expected of everyone. But there are two kinds of obedience. There's the obedience of the one who wishes that he didn't have to obey. But he's doing it to try to get God's blessings and to try to make himself right with God. In other words, trying to save himself. But the obedience of love is all the difference in the world. And that's why the the trajectory of salvation begins with fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Spirit works that by convicting us of sin. But God doesn't want us to stay there. Fear moves to faith when we realize what Christ has done for us, that we don't have to be afraid. Christ has dealt with our brokenness, our sin, our shame, all our past, and he is our righteousness. And he's not against us, he's for us. But may I say that the call of God is for us to grow beyond faith. What do I mean by that? When you enter a relationship of love, you no longer really need to think in terms of faith because you now have the knowledge, personal knowledge, of love. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now faith, hope, and love, these three abide, but the greatest of these is love. That's where we're going, into the love of God. If you've been married for a long time and you've had a good marriage and you totally, completely know one another and know your spouse and someone says, do you have faith that your spouse is really dealing right with you? You'd almost say, it's not that I have faith. We love each other. We, we know each other. We breathe together. We're one. And that's where the Lord is taking us. That is our salvation, union with Christ. Where we, by the Spirit, are in Christ. And Christ is in us. And when we turn, even for a moment from that, it grieves us. We say, Lord, I... Why would I do that? I don't want to be, in the words of the, of the Proverbs, uh, like the dog going back to his vomit. I don't want to go back there. I want to walk in the light of your love and for your love to flow through me. And so it is the Spirit that does that, who brings to us the love of God, and then, as we yield to him, loves through us. This is the work of the Spirit in a believer's life. And he will take you and me as far as we are willing to be taken. And he will conform us to the image of Christ to the degree that we desire and are willing so to be conformed. What will be 
your response? What will be mine in this season of Pentecost to this greatest of gifts?